Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory. A beautiful, warm, 70-plus degree day in February here in Tucson. That's for the people listening to the podcast. We welcome those of you watching us on the World Wide Web at iTunes U or streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. Uh, before we begin tonight's lecture, I have to make a couple of announcements. The first is that this is just hot off the presses, as you can see there. You may not know, you may not have heard of Jill Tarter. She's at the SETI Institute. Um, it, she was the woman that Carl Sagan had in mind when he wrote the novel Contact. So a lot of people say that Jodie Foster, you know, played her in the movie. Okay, so um, she's going to be here during our spring break for a conference that's up at one of the resorts. But she has graciously um, agreed to give a public lecture on Tuesday evening, the 18th. Now, this will be during the university spring break, which means parking here will be easy. Um, but the last time Jill spoke, about 10 years ago, she gave a talk here in this room. We, I had 300 people packed into this room, and I had to turn people away. So that's why we're still looking for a bigger room. We're probably not going to do it in this room, maybe over at Physics, because their uh, lecture hall seats 350. This only seats 230. So we're trying to find a room that we don't have to pay for that's big enough to hold, because I think we'll get a lot of people coming to uh, her talk. But save that date for Jill Tarter on the 18th of March. Um, also, uh, if there are any students here for an assignment, I am the one who will stamp your assignment at this table at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. And it's a beautiful, clear night in Tucson. Uh, Tonight's lecture is about the moon, and we've got a waxing gibbous moon up there in the sky. So you'll be able to go look at the moon through the Raymond E. White 21-inch telescope at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. It's the big white building with the white dome on top. Also, if you have not signed up for our email list, please do so, because as soon as we do have confirmed a time and a lecture hall for Professor Tartar's talk, you know, we'll send that email out so everyone knows uh, where it's going to be. So if you're not on our email list to get uh, information from Stewart Observatory, feel free to sign up at the back of the room. All right, preliminaries out of the way. Tonight, we are pleased to welcome one of our newer postdoctoral fellows here at Stewart Observatory, Dr. Cameron Hummels. Uh, Cameron received his bachelor's degree in computer science at Pomona College, which I believe is in Southern California, in the Los Angeles area. And then he received his PhD in astrophysics from Columbia University, which is an Ivy League school on the island of Manhattan. And uh, he, it was about a year and a half ago, he received his PhD from Columbia, that'd be 2012, and he came right here. So he's only about a year and a half out of grad school. And he does research in computer simulations and models of galaxy formation and galaxy evolution. But last year, uh, Charlotte uh, Christensen gave a very similar talk. So we thought for this talk, you know, we can talk about galaxy simulations next year. He would give a primer on the moon uh, because we tend to ignore it. I personally would like to not see it in the sky because it makes the sky bright and it's hard to see the interesting stuff. But that's just my opinion. But the moon is an important thing. It's up there. And I call upon Dr. Hummels to talk about the moon, formation, exploration, and habitation. Thank you for the uh, 
the great introduction, Tom. Uh, so yeah, as Tom pointed out, am I getting too much? Yeah, uh, I'll bring it down. Keep okay. talking. As Tom pointed out, my research is primarily in uh, in galaxy evolution and computer simulations of of how galaxies form and evolve. But I have had a little bit of experience. I did a, a couple of projects related to, to lunar research, which I think I'll allude to throughout the course of this. Um, unfortunately, it's too bad that none of the people at the Lunar and Planetary Lab next door are giving this talk because they have a lot more uh, uh, knowledge on some of these topics than I potentially do. But anyway, let's, let's get started. So what is the moon? Right? This is a pretty general question, and I'm sure everyone here can at some level answer that. Um, but let, let's make it more general. What is a moon? And I invite the audience to raise their hands and respond, although the responses are forbidden from employees of Stewart Observatory, LPL, NOAO, or any of the related astronomical institutions in Tucson. Yes? It's a satellite. It's a satellite. A satellite of what? Of whatever, that's right, that's right. Okay, so, so it's a satellite, a natural satellite of some sort of uh, astronomical object that's substellar. It's not quite a star, because if it were a, a satellite of a star, then we'd call it a planet, right? Or a dwarf, yes. Um, so, so we'll call this a satellite of a, a natural satellite of a substellar object, okay. And does anybody have any idea of how many moons there are in our solar system, for instance? There are lots. There are lots. Um, uh, the, the, the inner planets, you know, Mercury and Venus, we don't have any. Earth has one. Mars has two. Um, and then as you go to the outer planets, there are a considerable number of, of moons. Um, so far, no one has found a moon of a moon yet, either in our solar system or outside of our solar system, um, although it is potentially dynamically possible, um, although a bit challenging because the moon might get ripped off from, the moon of the moon might get ripped off from the moon and join the, 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 the parent object. Anyway, I'm getting off track. Uh, so what about, what is, what's our moon? Well, let's think about this historically. Initially, you know, we can't say that someone discovered the moon because it's the most obvious thing that you can see when you look up in the sky at night, right? It's the second brightest object in the sky besides the sun. It's, it's, uh, it's about the same apparent size as the sun, and we'll get a little bit into the implications of that later on. Um, it, it completes one cycle of phases every 29 and a half days, and we'll, we'll talk a bit about what phases are and what causes them and, and, and all of that in a bit. Um, and, and, and subsequently, because it was so regular in its timing and, and, and so bright, Many, many, many different early cultures base their calendars around it. There are a handful of calendars that are purely lunar-based, and many of the calendars, uh, even leading up today, are lunar-solar-based. I mean, for instance, even in the Western calendar, we have months, right? Months aren't strictly moon-based, but where do you think the name month comes from? Um, it's, and it's roughly 29 and a half days. So, so all of these things contribute to having a significant impact on, you know, early peoples and, and, and how they, they, they marked time. Uh, people at s different cultures more than others recognized that the moon was involved in, in certain kinds of eclipses. And the reason I asterisk that is because um, you may be familiar with this story of Christopher Columbus using the fact that, that uh, 
eclipses could be, could be monitored and could be predicted based on Western calculations, whereas other cultures at that period weren't necessarily up to that technological capability. So in 1504, when Columbus was dealing with uh, hostile Jamaican natives, uh, one night he, right, mostly because he was a jerk and he, he provoked them and stole from them, but, uh, but one night he, he said, you know, I'm going to, if, if you don't appease me in my wishes, I'm going to, to uh, conjure up, you know, tell, tell God to, uh, to eat up the, the moon. And uh, lo and behold, because he had, you know, basically a, an almanac that calculated these, uh, these eclipse cycles and such. And it coincided with one of these nights. And thus, uh, you know, seemingly on command, the, the moon turned red associated with this lunar eclipse. And, uh, and everyone in the village and on the island was, was thoroughly distressed and bowed to his wishes. And then he went at the appointed time that the eclipse was meant to be, to, to be over. He came back out and said, OK, well, thank you for appeasing me. I'll, I'll tell my god to, to release, uh, release the moon. And it went back to being normal. So, so it, it was possible, even in early times, to be able to predict the cycles associated with not just the phases, but also the eclipse, the eclipse cycles. Um, everyone seemed to notice at the time, even though there wasn't magnification in early times, that uh, the same side of the, the moon always faced us. Um, and we'll get a bit, a bit more into that as we, as we progress. And the, the Western Church, the Catholic Church, deemed it perfect, consistent with the, the dogma that was passed on. Um, since the, the ancient Greeks, that all celestial bodies were perfect and the earth was the center of the universe and everything orbited around us and so on and so forth. And yeah, the moon, like, like every, all, all of the other objects uh, in the celestial sphere, orbited around the earth. Okay, so you're probably all familiar with this. It's pretty straightforward. It's, it's, uh, it makes sense when you look up in the sky and you see this thing that you can figure all of these things out with, with just a little bit of thought. So, so let's progress to the next stage. The 17th century, I just picked arbitrarily because it's kind of the beginning of the scientific revolution. Um, so a bunch of things were posited at this period that enhanced our understanding of the moon. One was the Copernican revolution, which posed that we live in a heliocentric uh, solar system as opposed to an, a geocentric where everything's orbiting around, well, everything save moons are orbiting around uh, the, uh, the sun. And what Galileo did to further this is uh, he, he took the first actual sketches of the moon. He used a telescope, which he didn't invent, but, but was the first to, to turn it towards the heavens in 1604, I think. And 1609, 1609. thank you. And uh, so in doing so, he, he took sketches and showed some of the structures on the surface of the moon and showed that it wasn't quite as perfect as, as the church had led us to believe by dogma, and you, know, you can see these are, these are uh, representations of the sketches that he made. And you can see that the surface has structure to it, particularly along the terminator line. Now, the terminator line is simply the line dividing the light, the lit, the illuminated side, and the, the side that, that's still enshrouded in darkness. And it tends to, just as any high contrast lighting uh, does, it, it tends to increase the, the relief and, and the, 
the illustration of structures along that terminator line. So you can see craters, you can see valleys, you can see uh, structures that are consistent with it being more like the Earth than it is some sort of perfect uh, silver sphere in the sky. And this made him a bit of an enemy of the church and was partially responsible for him being put under house arrest later in his life because it was, he, he was showing evidence for things going against church dogma. Um, furthermore, about the same time, Kepler, uh, known for his famous uh, Kepler's laws associated with uh, orbital dynamics of the solar system, Kepler penned the, the terms Maria and Terre, which are essentially Latin for seas, like oceans, and uh, highlands for the dark and light features on the surface. So we see some of these darker features here. He would call, he would call seas, or mare, or maria is plural. Um, whereas the terre, the highlands, the white regions are the, are, the, are the terre. And that's really stuck around until today in terms of the naming scheme of things that we have for the moon. Even though we, you know, pretty shortly after, the, after that time, understood that it wasn't, in fact, oceans on the surface of the moon, at least oceans not, not in, the, in the way that we, we think of them today. But we'll get into that in a bit. All right. So this is just a map of the moon highlighting some of the features and their, their classical names. You may be able to see them. You may not. Um, but this is obviously the near side of the moon, because that's what people saw at that period and what, what we still see today. And you can see Oceanus Procolarum, the, the ocean of the largest ocean of the seas. All of these darker regions, like I said, are, are the mare, the, the seas. So you've got the Sea of Tranquility here, the Sea of uh, Serenity, the Sea of Storms, so on and so forth. And, and you see these throughout, whereas the wider areas where you can see more structure and more cratering tends to be older. And, uh, and is associated with the highlands and the higher regions on the surface. Are there any questions up to now? Throughout, uh, feel, feel free to raise a hand or whatnot. Probably not shouting, at least not at this point. But, but just raise a hand, and I'm happy to, to address any questions you guys have. But hopefully, I'll address them over the course of the lecture as well. Yes? Yes. And so just out of curiosity, the smoother, you know, oceans and seas, if there's no wind up there to kind of blow the dust around to flatten it, why is that why are they flatter? I would think it'd be the opposite, the crater thing would be more obviously. So the the question for the, the people listening along outside of the lecture here is why are the regions of uh, the highlands, the highland regions more cratered and older, uh, than the regions, the, the mare, the maria regions, the sea regions that are darker, um, like uh, the Sea of Tranquility. And it turns out that you can get a, a good approximation of the age of a particular region based on the number of craters that you find there. And it's something we'll address a little bit later in the talk. But um, because there's no erosion due to an atmosphere, because there's no erosion due to any kind of uh, moisture or whatnot on the surface, the only thing that erodes a location are uh, the creation of more craters from more impacts. So you can count up the number of craters in a particular region and 
the larger the number of craters, the older that, that region is. And so there just appear to be fewer, fewer craters in the flattened regions than there are in the highland regions, which is consistent with that. Does that address your question? Yes? Yes, there was, there's uh, evidence of water and water ice in certain locations of the moon, and I'll, I'll address that later on in the talk. Okay, so what is the moon? What is our present understanding of the moon before we move on at all? Okay, so the moon is about 25% of the size of the Earth, quite large for a moon relative to its parent planet. Um, it's about 250,000 miles away, which is pretty distant as well. Uh, in terms of relative sizes and relative distances of, of planets and moons. And it's orbiting in an elliptical orbit around the Earth. The, the, the ellipse, as you know, is a, is a squashed circle. And it's not super eccentric. The, the distance between the closest, the, the, the perigee, the closest point of its orbit to the Earth, and the apogee, the farthest point of its orbit around the Earth, is only about 10%. So when you get an internet forward from someone saying, look out, there's going to be a super Earth next week. It's going to be huge. It's actually only going to be about 5% bigger than it normally is. And you probably won't notice it that much. Um, what's that? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. I, I, thank you for correcting me. Uh, a super, super moon. Yes. Yeah, hopefully we can't see the super Earth from the Earth. Uh, yeah, so... so so it is on an elliptical orbit, and it only has a little bit more than 1% of the mass of, of, of the Earth contained therein. And because, it's, because how gravity works, as you increase the mass of an object, like, for instance, if you increase the mass of the Earth by a factor of two without changing any of the other variables, like the size of it or whatnot, we would all weigh twice as much. We'd be pulled gravitationally towards, the, surf, uh, towards the, the center of the Earth by a factor of two greater. We'd all double our weight. But on the surface of the moon, uh, while it is both smaller as well as less massive, it's much less massive uh, than, than the Earth. And so the gravitational pull on the surface of the moon is much lower. So if you want, you know, if you're trying to diet and you want an instant uh, decrease in your weight, then go to the surface of the moon. And, and you'll be able to, you know, jump up and use my microphone here. You'll be able to jump up and, uh, in fact, this was a problem for, for the Apollo astronauts being able to, to, to move on the surface. They found that, that hopping along was the most effective means of locomotion because, they could, because there was less surface gravity and they could, they could move forward and jump higher that way. But what that means, too, is that the forces holding our atmosphere and the gases on the surface of the Earth to the Earth, if you diminish those forces that are holding them there, the gases tend to escape more readily. And so part of the reason that the, Earth, the Moon has no atmosphere is simply because there's not enough gravitational force holding that atmosphere onto the surface of the Moon. So the atmosphere is, there's a very slight trace atmosphere, but it's very, very small uh, compared to what we have here. Because there's no atmosphere, there's no erosion. So you find, as, as we discussed just a few minutes ago, you find a lack of erosive pro, uh, processes. And so 
structures that build up, like impacts and craters, stay there for long, long, long periods of time. They don't erode because of water processes or wind processes. The only thing that tends to erode them are the presence of more impacts and craters. And similarly, without an atmosphere, uh, you have little to temper the temperature extremes that might occur from being in the sun and in the shade. And I know when I first, uh, as Tom pointed out, I moved here from New York, where obviously the weather is significantly different from here. And it was quite a shock to me, the difference between being in the shade and the sun here because of the lack of humidity in the air. But when you have no air whatsoever, it's even worse on the surface of the moon between going between being in the sunlight and being in the shade by a factor of you know, 500 degrees extremes between the two. So it's really a significant, a significant difference on the surface of the moon. There appears to be no magnetic field or no significant magnetic field associated with the moon because there's no dynamo in the interior of the of the moon that's stirred up in the same way that we have on the Earth. Uh, thus, you know, you can't use a compass or anything like that. And similarly, uh, because there's no magnetic field, it doesn't uh, deflect cosmic radiation, whether it be solar winds or, or cosmic radiation from extra, extra solar sources, uh, which is potentially a problem for astronauts landing there or any kind of uh, long-term mission that goes there. Finally, low albedo. Albedo is essentially the reflectance of the material there. From this image, and when you look up in the sky, you, you see the, the moon, and it's quite bright. But in actuality, the reflectance of the material that makes up the, the moon is more like asphalt. It's very, very dark. It only reflects about 10% of the light that's incident upon it. And the reason we think of it as so bright is, well, it's the only thing in the sky that's at that distance and it's being illuminated by the sun. So it's, it's bright compared to everything else, but, but uh, in actuality, it's, it's just not reflecting that much light. And finally, it has a similar composition to Earth in terms of many of the, uh, many of the elements present there. There are a couple of stark differences. As I noted before, there's no magnetic field or no significant magnetic field because it lacks a lot of iron in the core relative to the iron core of the Earth. Um, but a lot of the other compositional uh, elements associated with the moon are, are similar to what we find on the Earth, suggesting some sort of formation mechanism that, 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 that works within the constraints of having them have similar uh, compositions. And finally, water. Um, I'll put that off until later. For a long time, water was thought to be, you know, the moon was thought to be bone dry. And then in the last five years or so, there's been uh, significant evidence to suggest that at least there are trace amounts of water in different parts of the moon. Yes? Yes. It doesn't appear to be. People can study the structure. Oh, uh, and for the listeners at home, uh, the question was, because there's, you know, the, the mass of the moon is, is quite small compared to the Earth, while the size isn't that small, is there some other uh, 
explanation for this, this, this drop in mass, um, aside from the lack of iron, is it potentially due to, to uh, some hollow interior or a different structure? And we think we have a pretty good understanding of the interior structure of the moon. Um, there are ways of studying it kind of in a similar way to how we study uh, the interior of the Earth, and, and that's from sound waves traveling throughout it. Now, it doesn't appear that the moon has active plate tectonics in the same way that the Earth does for shifting things around, um, but it does appear to have a mantle and a core and a crust in the same way that the Earth does. Um, and one of the ways in which we study it is uh, during the Apollo missions, they left several different objects on the surface of the moon, including seismometers for, for studying the, the earthquakes, or in this case, the moonquakes. And it appears there are, in fact, moonquakes, although, although, as I said, they aren't from plate tectonics. It appears that they're from tidal shifting and from tidal forces that deform the surface of the moon. So from that, they've been able to piece together that it doesn't appear that it's hollow. It has a similar differentiated structure like we have on the Earth, but it just appears to be depleted from, from about, I think it's about 30% less iron in the interior than we have here. And because of its smaller size, those are the two things that really contribute to the drop in total mass. Does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. The, okay, so the question is, was there ever a magnetic field associated with the moon uh, that could be evidenced by any of the, the samples that have been taken back from the Apollo or the Lunacod missions? And the answer appears to be yes. It appears that there may have been a significant magnetic field in the past. Um, there appear to be some surface structures, but they aren't co-aligned across the entire surface. Certain regions might have a magnetic field much smaller than the magnetic field on the surface of the Earth, but a magnetic field like we're talking, I think, micro-gauss, something like that, um, maybe even nano-gauss. But it, it appears localized. So there's no cohesive structure uh, in terms of the magnetic field over the, the global surface. Any other questions? OK. All right, so why are there phases of the moon? This may seem obvious to some of you. This may seem not obvious to some of you. Um, I'm just going to really quickly try and address this. Uh, here we see a, a, a pretty cool looking map of the different phases. And as Tom pointed out tonight, is a, is a waxing gibbous. Isn't that right? Waxing gibbous. Waxing gibbous. OK. So everybody recognizes this phase. What's, what's this phase? Full moon. Full moon. And this phase, this new moon. Right. And what, does anyone know what this? First quarter, right, first quarter. So it's a half moon, but it's the first quarter of the cycle. But it may be confusing because you're like, first quarter, it looks like a half moon. Um, but essentially what happens is we go from new moon to first quarter to full to third quarter and then back to, to new. And in the process, we go through these crescent cycles where it's less than the half moon and then through this gibbous cycle, where it's more than the half moon, but not quite full. And of course, waxing means to get bigger. So it's waxing through this period, and then it's waning through this period until it gets back to the new moon. Um, so a lot of people throughout our society think that 
the moon's phases are due to the shadow of somehow the shadow of the earth getting in the way of the illumination from the sun. And that's not accurate. So I just wanted to address that here to make sure everyone is, you know, a-okay when somebody on the street asks you this question, you can, you can give them a good explanation. And I'm going to try and do that with these simple tools. Um, okay, but before we get there, really quickly, we've got, think of what, what, what the system of the, the sun, the earth, and the moon are. We've got three, three objects. The, the, the earth is rotating. And every rotation, it takes one day to, to do a full rotation. The moon is orbiting around the, moon, uh, around the Earth. And that takes uh, roughly a month in order to, to complete, uh, 29 and a half days from our perspective. And finally, the Earth is orbiting around the sun. And it takes a year for that to occur. And for the most part, it's all coplanar. This is all happening in the same plane. And I'm going to show a little video here that I found online. It's not entirely accurate because someone didn't take into account the fact that the Earth should be rotating much, much faster than it appears to be here. And of course, this isn't, in, uh, this isn't to scale. But you can see that the moon's orbiting. They're, they're all orbiting in the same plane, right? OK. So, but as this image points out, those planes aren't perfectly aligned, but they're very, very close. And that's going to play a key role in, uh, in determining something about phases and eclipses in a moment. But that's right. That's right. OK. Oh, yeah, there's just this video that I found online, which may not. We already covered this pretty well. This is just the continuous, uh, the continuous phases. So I'll move on. All right, so essentially the answer is we're changing the illumination from the sun. There's, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with shadows. But something that, that we pointed out in the process of that is how we get eclipses. Now, as we see here, this is a little bit um, extreme, but the plane of the moon's orbit around the Earth is not exactly coplanar with the orbit of the Earth around the sun. If they were exactly coplanar, then every time we had a new moon or a full moon, there would be an eclipse. Right? But it's about five degrees off. So it doesn't happen every month that we get an eclipse. That'd be actually be really cool if we got an eclipse every month, or two eclipses every month. But, but we only get them, you know, a lunar eclipse you get roughly every, you know, every six months to 18 months. And then a solar eclipse happens somewhere on the Earth, probably on that, that time scale. But Usually, well, as I'm about to demonstrate, it, it only happens in one where you can see a full so solar eclipse in one location very, very infrequently. Unfortunately, I looked on the calendar and I couldn't find a full solar eclipse that was visible from Tucson for the next 20 years. So I'm sorry. We'll have to travel to go see them. Yes, Oregon in 2017. Okay, so why are there eclipses? It occurs now. This is what what uh, has to do with the shadows. When when you have this co-alignment, where the two planes do line up, uh, you get. I've got the wrong light. I don't want to point the sun at it. 
I'm going to point the laser at it. Okay, so we've got our sun, and of course this isn't quite to scale, but, um, but for, for the purposes of this diagram it works. We've got the sun, and we've got the earth, and the earth casts a shadow. It always casts a shadow. It just doesn't always happen that the moon falls within that shadow. And when it does, you get a lunar eclipse. Now, you might expect that the, the moon just turns black because it's in a shadow during that period. But it's not, it's not so. What ends up happening is the atmosphere that surrounds the Earth ends up refracting the light that strikes that, and it bends the light, as refraction does, it bends that light towards the, the area that's being shadowed, uh, shadowed. In doing so, our atmosphere has enough small particulate matter in it that it also filters that light, and it filters out the blue light, which is part of the reason we have blue skies, right? Because light scatters, sunlight scatters off the particulate matter, and usually not, I don't want to say particulate matter, I want to say clumps of oxygen atoms and so on and so forth, oxygen molecules, and it scatters that light, and we see blue light. But what that, what that does is it, it pulls out the blue light of the sunlight, so that the only remaining light to refract through there ends up being red or brownish. So, how many? Uh, please raise your hand if you've seen a lunar eclipse. I expected as much from an astronomical group as you. Um, they appear red, right? It's because all of the blue light has been scattered out of it when it when it goes through the umbra. Yeah, there are two two sections here, uh, two parts of it. The umbra, which is the full shadow where none of the direct light from the sun can encounter the object that's the, the lunar object. Um, and there's the penumbra, where it, it's in this region where it's only partially shadowed. And what that looks like as a time series is this. So the moon traveling across that shadow region, for a time it's only, it's only blocked of part of the light when it's, when it's in the penumbra, and finally when it's in the umbra, it's, it's not receiving any direct sunlight. It's only filtered through that refraction process, and it appears very red. Now, the thing about a lunar eclipse, as you can see kind of from this diagram, is that it affects the entire moon, and everyone on the night side of the Earth looks up and sees it as occurring. You don't have to be in a special location. You just have to be, you know, it has to be nighttime. What's that? You have to be awake. Yes, that can sometimes be a challenge. That can sometimes be a challenge. Uh, the next lunar eclipse visible from here is just in a couple of months. And I uh, estimate there will be something that probably is going on through some of the astronomical groups in, in town, whether it be Stewart or, or the, um, the Undergraduate Astronomy Club or so on and so forth. But if you've never seen one, I recommend it. And it only means staying up till about midnight, which isn't the end of the world. Okay, so what about solar eclipses? Solar eclipses occur when we have the reverse. When you have the moon, that's the thing that's blocking the light from the sun to a specific spot on the Earth. Because you see, it's a cosmic coincidence, really, that the apparent size of the moon is about the apparent size of the, of the sun in the sky. There's no reason that that should necessarily be the case. But right now, it's true. And it means that we get these eclipse effects. But what that also means is there's only one small region on the surface of the Earth that's being totally enshrouded by, by the, the shadow of the moon from the light from the sun. And because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere like the Earth does, you don't get that refraction effect. You don't get that reddened glow 
You just get darkness. And it's awesome. How many people in the audience have seen a total solar eclipse? Please raise your hand. Okay, awesome. If you haven't, go out of your way to see one because it's really, really cool. Um, I, there will be one that occurs, as was mentioned before, in North America in 2017. Um, it'll be visible, the, the center line, this small region, uh, which I think it lasts something on the order of three and a half minutes of totality. Um, that small region will travel from Oregon all the way across North America, and I think it exits out around North Carolina into the Atlantic Ocean. And so if you're on that center line where you get totality, that center line is about 100 miles wide, you'll see a total solar eclipse. And it, it's, it's really, it's breathtaking. So this was an image taken aboard uh, the Mir space shuttle um, in the last 15 years. This is a spot, that's the spot of totality from space looking down on the surface of the Earth. So you can really see that there's a, a clear shadow cast by the moon. And this is, you know, essentially what it looks like during totality. You've got the black disk of the moon covering up the glowing disk of the sun. And when it drops the surface brightness of the sun, you can see other structures in the sky. If there were stars, you'd probably see stars up. When I saw my eclipse, uh, you could see Mars over here, which was really cool. Um, but you end up seeing this, which is the solar corona, which consists of very, very hot ionized gas surrounding the, the sun that glows. It's always there, and it's always glowing. We just can't see it over the brightness of the sun. Anyway, check it out, 2017. It's going to be awesome. Oh, yeah, and the next solar eclipse, although it's only a partial, will be visible this year. Um, partials are quite a bit less spectacular than total solar eclipses, but they are still cool. Um, and you can, with a, with a partial, you're only seeing, you know, part of the sun being obscured by the, the disk of the moon. And using pinhole cameras or a variety of other techniques, you can see that this is going on. But do not look at the sun. Don't look at the sun through three pairs of sunglasses, thinking it all co-ads and you're going to be safe. You can damage your retina. It can be bad news. So only, only look at the sun either through like welder's glass or in projection onto the surface of a, of a wall or on the, on the ground or something like that. Any questions? OK. All right, so why do we only see one side of the moon? Uh, any ideas from non-professional astronomers? Yes, it rotates as it turns. Exactly. It rotates as it turns. But how did it get to be that way? Um, OK, well, let's introduce a little bit of science here. We've got our gravitational force, which is simply, you know, this is all due to Newton and has been updated to some degree in certain certain contexts by uh, relativity and whatnot in the last century. But for the most part, this still stands. We've got Newtonian gravity. The gravitational force is equal to the gravitational constant times the mass of one object times the mass of the second object and divided by the distance between the two squared. And essentially, that means gravity is an attractive force. Any two objects that have mass are pulled towards each other. 
So, you know, even though I have a little bit of mass and this has even less, we are gravitationally attracted to each other. Um, and thus, well, what does that mean in the context of, of the moon? The moon and the Earth both have mass. They're both separated by a distance, r. Uh, and, and so they're pulled towards each other. In fact, that's what keeps the moon orbiting around the Earth. But the moon has size to it, right? So the, we'll say the Earth is over here. The, moon, the, the, the side of the moon that's closest to the Earth has less distance, less r. And so its force is greater pulling it closer to the Earth, whereas the central part of the moon has a larger distance between it and the surface of the Earth, and so its R is greater, and so its force is less. So what does that mean? It means there's differential force. It means there's stretching. Oh, there we go. Stretching of the Earth in the direction of the... Uh, I'm sorry, stretching of the moon in the direction of the Earth. It's, it's torquing it, and of course this is an extreme... Uh, illustration, it's not actually quite that oblate, but the moon is undergoing this, this torque. And that's partially what's responsible for the moonquakes I was talking about earlier. It's because the, the whole structure of the moon is being pulled by this, this differential force. Okay, but what does that mean for the Earth? The Earth also undergoes this. The Earth also feels this. Um, although to a lesser degree, because it's a larger structure and the moon is smaller. But it, it feels it. But while it deforms a little bit, most of its deformation takes place with the fluid that's on its surface, causing tides. So, of course, the bulk of the Earth's surface is covered in water. And water much more easily can deform to this, this gravitational force. And so what you end up with is the moon over here and, or the moon over here, and it pulls the water into this bulge, this ob oblate bulge on the surface of the Earth. But remember, the Earth is rotating much faster than the moon is orbiting around us. And so this fluid bulge tends to travel with the moon and not with the, the, the rotation of the Earth. And, well, I mean, that's why we get tides a couple times a day, right? Because the Earth is, is rotating through that bulge, the, those water bulges. And, but what that does is it slowly, it's, it's the presence of the water that's moving at a slower rate than the Earth is, it's, tr it's, it's actually slowing down the Earth. It's causing the Earth to slow down in its rotation, and consequently, because it's the moon that's, I mean, we have conservation of energy. That's one of the tenets of, of physics. Uh, that energy and that angular momentum is being transferred to the moon in its orbit. What that means is, over time, our day, the time it takes us to make one rotation, is getting longer. It's getting longer by like two and a half microseconds a year. It's not very long, but it's... It's, it's measurable. And, and consistent, consistent with that, the moon is getting farther away from us because that angular momentum of our, of our rotation is being transferred to its orbit. And it's getting three centimeters farther away from us per year. Now, three centimeters isn't very far. But we can measure it based on some of the instruments that the Apollo astronauts left on the surface of the moon to very, very carefully and accurately 
calculate the distance to the, to the moon from the Earth. What that does is once, presumably, the moon was rotating with its own period that didn't have any kind of correlation with its orbit around the Earth. But over time, it dissipated enough of its rotational energy in the same way that we're doing that, that it just locked up. And now it always faces us. Every time it makes an orbit around us, it makes one rotation. So it always faces us. And if left in this system where we're slowly dissipating our rotational energy, we will be the same, we'll do the same thing. We'll always have one face of the Earth pointed towards the moon and one side that never gets to see the moon. Now that's going to take 10 billion years. So it's not like you have to worry about your grandkids not being able to see the moon if they move to China or something like that. Um, but, but it is a process that's occurring. Okay. All right. I'm running out of time. And there's a lot to cover. Uh, are there any other questions before I move on? Okay. So how did the moon form? Well, really, this goes back to how did the solar system form? We understand the solar system. Uh, I mean, this is still an active field of research. And in fact, there are people in this audience who are involved in this sort of research. But um, how do solar systems and how do stars form? Well, we believe that you have a large cloud of gas that collapses down to form a star like our sun and the surrounding uh, planetary landscape, kind of like this. But it's, it's it's, it's quite, it may start out quite spherical with a little bit of rotation, but remember, gravity is an attractive force, so it starts to collapse. And as it collapses, um, you know, you think of things collapsing like that, but if it has some spin, it tends to band out into a disk structure, like you can see here. The inner part presumably collapses into the star, and the outer disk will, will condense and collapse into individual objects like planets or moons associated with planets, or rings associated with those planets. And that's what ends up giving you a, a system where all of the objects orbiting tend to be aligned in a similar plane of orbit, like we have in our solar system. OK, so how did the moon form? The explanation for the, moon, the moon's formation has to fit a bunch of different constraints uh, that I've listed here. The moon and the Earth have to have similar composition with the the exception of, of the iron content, really. Uh, they have to ma have matching isotope ratios in the different, the different uh, elements that are present in their, their mantles and crusts. The moon, uh, the moon has a lot of angular momentum. I mean, as we were talking about, it's rotating. Uh, it's orbiting at, at quite a high distance. And it has a, a relatively old age, as can be dated by these um, impact impactors and craters that are on the surface. OK, so the four, there are four main theories for how the moon formed. And we're going to kind of try and address each one. There's the binary model, where both the moon and the Earth formed at the same time out of that protoplanetary disk. And they just happened to be right next to each other. And, and the, sun was like, or the Earth was like, hey, moon, join me. And then the moon started you know, orbiting around it. The problem with this explanation is it's um, it cannot really account for compositional similarities or the isotopic similarities, because even the, the moon 
I'm sorry, even the Earth and Mars, even though they're quite close to each other in the solar system, they have drastically different composition, uh, drastic, rather drastically different isotopic uh, ratios. And so, and the same with Venus. And so even though the, the, the Earth and the Moon would form right next to each other, they wouldn't be able to match in terms of isotopes. So this, this, this model's kind of thrown out. There's the fission model, which is to say that the Earth was spinning so rapidly while it was in its young phase and it was a fluid that it just flung out part of its body and that became the moon, which seems a little far-fetched, but a lot of people believed it for a long period of time. But it can't account for the high angular momentum of the system. It, it, you just can't fling something that far out uh, to, to have it consistent with the dynamics of the, of the Earth-Moon system. There's the capture model, where the Earth was sitting around doing its thing, orbiting around the, the, the sun, and all of a sudden an object came from the outer solar system, and it just it, it, it got captured by the gravitational forces associated with the Earth, and then went into a, a stable orbit. And unfortunately, the dynamics of that aren't really consistent with... with um, there, there'd have to be an enormous atmosphere to, to slow that object down, to bring it into an orbit associated with us, as well as the composition in the outer solar system, wherever this body formed, would have to, is probably very, very different than the, than the composition in the inner solar system in terms of the elements and the isotopes. And finally, there's the giant impactor model, which is the currently preferred model, which basically proposes that a Mars-sized object flew in during the early uh, solar system development, and it struck the Earth. It, it essentially got, you know, it disrupted significantly and turned into this fluid storm which formed a disk with part of the Earth as well as all of the impactor. So that explains why the elemental composition would be the same between both objects. And then uh, it slowly coalesced into a single structure which we would call our moon. So it's consistent with the dynamics in terms of the angular momentum and it's somewhat consistent in terms of the compositional uh, similarities between the two objects. But there are still some concerns with that model. So it's not a closed case yet. But that's the preferred model. OK. So since that time, oh, I'm, I, I have this really cool video that I stole from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbit, Orbiter, which demonstrates uh, kind of the history of the moon since the period uh, associated with its formation. OK. So here's our moon. It's all magma-y on its surface, and it's cooling off. So it cools off. These fissures dry up. OK, we're, we're doing good. OK, so it gets hit by something else. It gets hit, and it creates this significant structure in the, the, the southern pole region called the South Pole Aiken Basin, which is, I think it's the biggest crater in the solar system. It's certainly the biggest crater on the surface of the moon. And then it gets hit by some other stuff. You see, in the early part of the solar system, remember I was talking about that, that disk of structure. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of material and debris that's still orbiting around and striking the bodies that are present in the solar system. And that period's called the late heavy bombardment. Uh, and you know, there are different theories as to why that occurs. Some people think there was a migration of the gas giants, which perturbed the... the um, asteroid belt and sent a bunch of bodies into the inner solar system, slamming into everything. Uh, 
But it's during that period that we have the creation of the maria on the near side. And I'll show an image of the far side in a moment that demonstrates that the near side is quite different from the, the, the far side. But you see a lot more of the, the maria, the, the volcanic plains on the near side. And then there's more stuff that's slamming into the moon. And keep in mind, the Earth is also being struck by these objects, but we just don't see as much of it because we have erosive, proper, uh, erosive processes on the, on the surface of the Earth to kind of erase and wipe out some of these structures. But as I alluded to before, the cratering processes are essentially used to age things, to figure out how old things are because, because craters don't go away. And so there's this, you know, there's crater counting that people will do, and, and I did some of this, and it's really boring to, uh, to just look at a region of the moon and count craters and try and identify how many craters are there, which then tells you something about, uh, about the age of that particular region or that particular structure. Okay. And so, lastly, how has the moon been explored? You know, obviously, several lectures could be dedicated to the, the exploration of the moon. I'm going to cover it relatively quickly. Um, essentially, it started with the space race. The, the Russians sent up a couple of, of modules in 1959, um, which Apollo, uh, Luna, Luna 2 had a hard landing where it just crashed, essentially, on the moon. And Luna 3 was an orbiter and took the first images of the far side of the moon that had ever been taken. Now, you see on the near side, everything's named, you know, in Latin and for, for you've got Ptolemy here, Copernicus, Eratosthenes. You've got all these Greeks and classical scientists and so on and so forth that different features are named for. Well, the far side's all named for Russians because the Russians were the ones to discover it. So this is the far side. As you can see, when we look at the near side, we see all this structure, all these uh, lava plains, the maria. Um, but on the far side, there's only one maria. And uh, that's Mari Moscovensis. It's the Moscow Sea, of course. Um, and everything else is highlands. And it's still not fully understood why the two sides of the moon differ so greatly. Um, People explain it by saying the far side has more, it has a thicker crust, and so it's easier to punch through that crust on the near side, but that doesn't necessarily explain why there's the asymmetry and the thickness of the crust. So uh, it's still somewhat, you know, it's still an active field of research trying to understand why there are the differences between the two sides. Okay, finally, uh, so the lunar missions happened uh, through the 60s and early 70s, and of course, um, Kennedy gave his famous announcement in 1961 saying we're going to go to the moon and beat those Russian guys and, and everything's going to be great. And then, oh, whoops. And then the Apollo era, you know, started in 1961 with that. We, we made it to the moon in 1969 with Apollo 11, and we went up six times uh, until 1972. So 12 people have been on the surface of the moon. 12 people. Six missions have made it where where boots have been on the ground. Uh, this is Buzz Aldrin here. Um, and, then, and then we stopped. Because, yes, there's scientific value in going to the moon, but I, don't think, I personally don't think that's what drove us to go to the moon. I think it was nationalist pride. I think it was trying to 
you know, outdo the foreign superpower and, and, and you know, effectively succeed in bankrupting them through the space race. Uh, but that also explains why there hasn't been a lot of exploration of the moon since 1972, which is really a shame. But, you know, budgets are as they are. Uh, here's a map of all the different locations where either uh, in red you can see the Luna missions by the Russians, so you see some red spots where we landed on the, on the, the near side. The green are the Apollo landing sites, and the yellow are the surveyor sites, which were not manned missions, of course, neither were the Luna missions, but um, they were locations of, of hard landings and such. Uh, good question. I didn't put Jade Rabbit on here just yet. I forget. I, does anyone know where Jade Rabbit landed? Or Chang'e 3? Okay, well, uh, well, we'll cover this really quickly. Post-space race, there's been some uh, interest in exploration. And again, I think mostly it's driven by nationalistic sentiment as opposed to any kind of scientific endeavor. Uh, over the last... 30 years, the Americans have had, you know, Clementine and Prospector and Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and L-Cross. L-Cross is the one that we slammed into it to, like, kick up water. Um, there's been some, there have been a few missions to go there and map different issues. But as of late, Japan, India, China, and Europe uh, in the last 10 years or so have been landing, well, have been orbiting for the most part, orbiting and taking images. Uh, but it was just two months ago that the Chinese became the third nation to put a, a, a rover on the surface of the moon. Uh, it's called the Chang'e 3, or also known as the, the Jade Rabbit. Um, although I understand it's not doing particularly well right now, but um, it's kind of forcing the hand of the Americans because well, we can't let the Chinese be back up there. We've got to be back there. So, so um, there's renewed interest in trying to get back to the moon exploration and resource, take, taking advantage of resources and so on and so forth. What, how am I? I'm my past. Is it really? Oh, okay. Okay, two past, three past. Okay, very quickly, exploration. Can we live there permanently? The benefits of living on the moon, further scientific study, we can put telescopes on the far side of the moon. Without an atmosphere, you don't have, uh, you don't have perturbations due to the atmosphere. You can put radio telescopes there, um, and they're blocked from the radio frequency interference that we have on the surface of the Earth that percolates into space. So it's really good for science. Um, we can do further exploration either on the surface of the moon or as a jumping off point to other locations in the solar system because the, the um, escape velocity from the moon, because its mass is lower, the escape velocity is lower, so you can launch rockets off it much easier. Of course, you have to get the rockets there. Uh, it's good insurance against disaster. You know, we've all seen Armageddon or Deep Impact where something destroys the Earth or even you know, I don't know, climate change or something like that. There are a variety of ways we can imagine things being bad for us here. Uh, so isn't it good insurance to have some population elsewhere in the solar system that isn't necessarily affected should a disaster go off here? Yeah, sure. Nationalist pride. Um, and finally, mining of natural resources, of which helium-3 is kind of the the hot topic. Helium-3 is, is an isotope of helium, which we all know, you know, 
make your voices sound really high-pitched when you breathe it in and speak like Mickey Mouse. Um, Helium-3 is, is an isotope that's more readily uh, allowed to participate in fusion reactions, so you can get a nuclear fusion reaction much easier and with less uh, radioactive output. So it's, you find a lot more of it on the surface of the moon because, it's, uh, because it doesn't have a magnetic field or atmosphere on the surface of the moon like the Earth does. And so, for instance, part of the stated reason for China going with, uh, with Jade Rabbit up there is to kind of do prospecting to see if this is actually an issue, if this is something that can be taken advantage of. Because nuclear fusion energy would be a much, 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 much cheaper resource than oil, solar, all of these things. Okay, and finally, last, last slide, can we live there permanently? The challenges, you know, we've seen the benefits, what are the challenges? Well, getting there is expensive and hard and dangerous. There's no atmosphere, so we have to take into account production of our own oxygen and so on and so forth. There are the huge temperature extremes, which aren't really cohesive to having uh, instruments that are that, that work fine-tuned, uh, very well fine-tuned. You have to have, have to be able to take into account these huge temperature fluxes. You have to worry about meteor impacts because the atmosphere isn't going to stop things. You have to worry about the solar wind and cosmic radiation and getting cancer because you don't have a magnetic field to deflect away all of this material. Um, you have to have some sort of energy source. People propose to have uh, solar panels or potentially a, a fusion reaction to provide energy. You have, to, you have to deal with water. Is there water there? Yes. It appears that there's some, there's some form of water or hydroxyl signal that's been found in certain regions, particularly in the polar regions. Um, there are regions that are permanently enshrouded, and so they're very, very cold, down to like 35 Kelvin, uh, which allow water to stick and freeze and stay there for indefinite periods of time. Finally, there's isolation, and there's governance. Everybody, like, all but maybe five countries in the world signed the Outer Space Treaty, which said this outer space, outer space is like, it's like the sea. It's like maritime law. It shouldn't be, you know, no country can own it. No country can profit from it. So it's not like we can go up there and say, we claim the moon for our own and we're going to make a military base here because everyone would get up and yell at us. Anyway, all of these things are problems. I don't have the solutions but thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Cameron. Uh, we do have some time. If there, I know a lot of you asked your questions during the talk. Does anyone have any other questions? Yes. I'm trying to understand um, why the uh, same side of the moon is always facing us. Is, are you saying that there is no rotation on its axis? The moon doesn't rotate like? It does rotate, but it just, it's that one rotation on its axis equals one orbit of its motion around the, the Earth. Because you imagine, well, in fact, we, we right, can yes. do this. We can do this. As, as, as I orbit the Earth, I'm turning at the same rate. So, so you're I'm always, always facing. facing the Earth. So here we see this, this cut in the ball, right? If it weren't rotating on its axis, then as it goes around me, the Earth, I see a different face of it throughout, right? But it's actually orbiting. It just makes one full revolution every time it orbits around me. 
So I'm always looking at this, this cut. But effectively, if we took that and didn't include the orbit, it just did this. It did one full rotation in one full orbit. What's optional means one day on the moon is a month. Yes. So if right. you were on the moon, you'd see the sun in the sky for two weeks, and there'd be no sun in the sky for two weeks. Right, which is also a problem for growing crops on the surface of the moon. This is a concern. Do we have crops that can, can survive two weeks of darkness and then two weeks of light? Proposed issues have been like, have fast-growing crops that can, you can plant them, and two weeks later, you can harvest them, which is cool, but maybe not feasible. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Wondering about during a total solar eclipse, the change in the barometric pressure in the uh, shadow, how does that happen? That's a good question. This is an active field of, of research uh, by a gentleman named Jay Pasikoff, who's based in Massachusetts. He has planted different pressure and temperature sensors at different locations in the path of the total solar eclipse and finds that the temperature can drop by a factor of um, up to 15 or 20 degrees during that period. The pressure uh, would also potentially change dramatically and cause, generally people experience a wind as it travels through there, primarily due to thermal, thermal drops in, in, in the pressure. So the temperature drops and it also causes a change in pressure, usually. Any other questions? You always have a question, no? All right, then I would like to remind you. Oh, we have one more question. Uh, I happened to see a uh, total uh, solar eclipse. Uh, that was back in 1991 in Mexico. Oh, cool. And they talked about the seraph cycle. Could you tell us what a seraph cycle is? Ah, uh, now I have to recall. So the seraph cycle is named after Aristarchus one of the early Greeks who, well, pretty much the first Greek astronomer, that, the first astronomer that we know of. Um, and he did some careful, some careful uh, cataloging of eclipses, both solar and lunar, um, and found that essentially the Sarah cycle, I believe, is when it has something to do with, well, I guess all eclipses do. I thought it was something to do with when those, remember uh, the, the orbital plane of the moon is just askew from the orbital plane of the Earth. And it has to do with some resonance that you find between when those, those align. And it doesn't, the Sarah cycle doesn't explain every solar eclipse, I don't believe, but I believe it, it, it explains 60% of them or something like that. And usually the Sarah cycle ones are the longest in duration. But in terms of the details, I, I can't give you more than that. I believe it's 18.2 years. And what it is is it's the procession of where the, because as Cameron said, the moon's orbit is not coplanar with the Earth's orbit. It's tilted at five degrees. The two places where the orbits meet are called the nodes. And it has to do with the procession of those nodes. Right. Because whenever the, the nodes are lined up with the Earth-Sun line, that's called eclipse season, because that's when eclipses can occur. And it turns out that the, all the various possibilities of alignments repeat themselves every 18.2 years. That's the Saros cycle. So those it's, are the right. nodes along the... Uh, right, those are the... Uh, I'll hit the light here. There we go. Okay. The nodes where those two planes co-align. 
that node that travel the line that travels right. through there. And if those nodes aren't aligned with the Earth-Sun line, you can't have eclipses. Right. So that's all right. I would like to remind you. Um, we have a special lecture coming up in two weeks. There's not going to be a lecture two weeks from tonight because we have the Mark Aronson Memorial Lecture next. Uh, the Mark Aronson Lectureship is given in honor of Mark Aronson, our colleague who was killed on Kitt Peak in the line of duty uh, as an astronomer back in 1987. And this year's Aronson Lecturer is uh, Alice Shapley, a professor at uh, UCLA. And she will give a scientific lecture on Thursday afternoon. Then she gives uh, a public lecture on Friday night. So in two weeks, instead of the lecture being on Monday night, it will be on Friday night, the 28th. And we'll have the telescope open, as always, for public viewing. And the title of Dr. Shapley's lecture is Decoding the Contents of Distant Galaxies. The next Monday talk will be a month from today, on the 10th of March. And uh, I will remind you again, yeah, that will be Michael Chris, uh, who will talk about uh, astronomy and the muses. But just to remind you, two weeks from now, we're not meeting on Monday night, we'll be in this room on Friday. And once we have nailed down Dr. Tartar's uh, place and time for her lecture on March the 18th, we'll email that information out to you. Uh, I will stamp student assignments down here. Feel free to go look at the moon through our 21-inch telescope. And look at Jupiter, too. It's right next to the moon tonight. Right. And let's thank Dr. Hummels one more time. Thank you.